Welcome to the Build the Future podcast, where we promote exciting and positive visions of the future for those who are helping build it. Today, we're talking with Adrian Fenty, the founding managing partner at Mac Venture Capital and the former mayor of Washington, D.C. We cover everything from investing in the future, changing the landscape of education, the importance of local political involvement, and the future that we hope to build. Let's jump right in. I'm curious, like, how did having kids change the way you viewed the world and particularly like the future? You know, kids really focus you around like what's super important and basic. Like when I had kids, I really focused on education, which is a huge part of the past, the present and the future. So like, you know, since since my kids were like three years old, you know, I, I put them in school and I tried to make sure that, you know, they got a great education. But along the way, you kind of realize the disparities in education that exist in our country, in different cities and states throughout the world. And so that's really hyper-focused me on the need for this country and this world to do a much better job on, on education in general. And the, and the longer I'm a parent, the more passionate and irate I get about it. You know, Michael Milken, once uh, I went to hear him speak and he was talking about Two different countries. He was talking about Jamaica and Singapore, both countries of about 3 million people 20 years ago. And he said, both amazing countries. Jamaica, it chose to focus on tourism as their kind of lead industry. And Singapore chose to focus on, on education, on educating the people who work there. And you know, what he said was that 20 years later, you know, both countries are great, but Singapore has put together, you know, people who are you know, more PhDs, more college graduates, more high school graduates. And what that's done is that's totally transformed their entire country and that they have people who are more engineers with more ideas about transportation and, and economic development, et cetera. So if I had to pick one thing that my kids have connected me towards or looking at the future, it's, it's the importance of just being maniacal about education. Yeah, this is, this is a big topic these days because like there's kids are kind of getting sent back to school or even over the past year, parents have had to kind of help shepherd their kids' educations from home. And a lot of the kind of ways that kids have been being educated is like seemingly been broken, right? I'm curious to know, like, what do you see as kind of the path forward here? Like, what should our education system look like, right? When you think about the education you want your kids to have, like, what's working right now? What's not working? So I think two words, creativity and innovation. So creativity is doing things differently. So once someone once said to me, don't try to create an excellent school system, try to create a system of excellent schools. So almost by default, like the way it works now in public education, every school is supposed to kind of look the same. By default, it should be the opposite. Every school should look different with a different with a different type of principal and a different way of thinking, different teachers. And that's the creativity. Some schools should you know, go to school 10 hours a day. Some schools maybe six hours a day. It just depends on, you know, the curriculum and, and what we're doing. And there isn't that creative creativity in mass education in this country. And there should be. And then innovation, you know, I mean, I'm privileged and lucky to, to live in Silicon Valley now. And in Silicon Valley, like disruption, you know, is a word that is heralded. Disruption should be a word that is heralded in education. It should be someone comes up with a crazy, wacky idea. You know what I mean? Let's try it. As long as the kids are reading on grade level and math on grade level, then let's try all these kind of crazy ideas. People come and and if we did that, education would probably be the number one 
thing that venture capital funds invest in in Silicon Valley. Instead, it's probably the last thing that we invest in. What happens when you when you turn the like school as a like into a place for play and for experimentation and you kind of foster that sort of like possibility in the hearts and minds of young kids? Because right now they go sit down, listen to you know the same curriculum over and over and over again, and there's no variety. I mean, on a national scale, there's not much variety. Right? Everyone's kind of getting the same old repeated education. It's like. Like, how do we actually change this system, right? There's lots of people privately working on it. You've got, you've got primer, you've got synthesis school, you've got uh, like the micro schools of Montessori, but that's like a very small subset of the population. How I view the world is like, we can't just create things for, uh, pardon my, uh, I, I don't know any other way to phrase it, like the Silicon Valley or like the, you know, the upper or like the elite, right? It's like, oh yeah, you can afford to send your kid to like a private Montessori school. Great but it doesn't solve the real problem, which is like education on a, on a national and global scale. No, you're absolutely right. And there are people with great ideas in changing and disrupting education. Like you said, there are a school here, a school there. Just just take KIPP, uh, which is a uh, one of the biggest charter school uh, groups in the country. They have amazing schools and they're usually in impoverished neighborhoods and they do very disruptive things, mainly like they kind of hire different types of people to be teachers and they have different lengths of school days. And they probably have other things in the classroom that I'm not aware of. The problem with KIPP is the last I checked and maybe more, there's only 150 schools in the whole country. I mean, that's a drop in the bucket. We're, you know, you we have probably 150 schools in every city in this country or more. And so you need it to be as they say in Silicon Valley, you need to scale the thing. In order to scale the thing, in order to scale innovative education, you need to get the government to buy along with it. And the government is very resistant on buying into innovative ways to do things in education because they have stakeholders who like the way it's done now, adults who like the way things are done now. It could be the textbook industry who still sell, you know, two textbooks you know, by the millions to our kids when, you know, our kids are way more comfortable using, you know, cell phones or, or iPads. And then, of course, there's special interests like unions, which get involved in political campaigns. And then we have this thing in the Western Hemisphere in North and South America, where the left is pro-union and the right is not pro-union. And so what you have is, but then then it's a political thing because the right is always going to say, well, we're open to change and we're, we don't care what the union says. And the left says, well, we're not open to change because the union doesn't want it. And, and we're with the union. And, and in that whole debate, which already started boring and very adult, adult centric, there's, there's no talk about what's best for the kids. It's like the adults are fighting over the toys. It's like, stop, you need to give, give the toys to the kids, let them play with the toys. Like think about what's best for them rather than, you know. <laughs> and so you go back to your first question about like what, what have ha- having kids taught me about education, you know, every parent, I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if someone says like, if you have a bad teacher in the classroom and then you, and it's your parent, you're like, change the teacher immediately. You know what I mean? You're like, do whatever it takes to educate my kid. And then to your other point, when it's someone else's kids, particularly lower income kids who you know don't don't have people fighting for them as much, people don't care and they let the system persist as it is. So education and education to me is not only an exciting part of the future, but it's like imperative. 
part of the future. Just on that textbooks note, I saw, I saw this thing that shocked me recently, which was these professors as part of the kind of textbook company kind of monopoly were requiring students to purchase a packet, which was like their access code to the textbook. And so it was literally these people got a, like a, a novel, a manila envelope in the mail, and it had digital codes for them to go to, onto their computer to type in to get access to the digital textbook. So they didn't even get a physical textbook. They had to like pay hundreds of dollars for the access codes to these things. It's like, this is ridiculous. No, anyway, we could go on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but the answer is definitely in government and politicians and finding ways to hold them more accountable for results in, in the schools. That's a great, great segue that I want to make to kind of your, your political life. So you're a former mayor of, of DC and I'm curious kind of like, as someone who's who's kind of been inside that that system, what sort of changes need to be made kind of on a national scale that could help lead to some of these changes in education? It, or actually, is this even a national thing? Or is this going to come down to mayors in, in individual cities taking some leadership position saying, hey, we need our education system to look different, or we need our transportation system to look different? Like, there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape that's kind of impeding our ability to, to build a future that's bright and prosperous for everybody. And it seems like the bottleneck at this point is mostly political. I'm curious to know what you think about that. Yeah, every mayor should absolutely be in charge of the school system for one reason. One person has to be held accountable, right? Get rid of the school boards. There's too many people. Nothing has ever run well when you have six, eight, nine, 13 people in charge of it. So just have one person in charge. And... It should be very simple. Test scores, grade point averages, graduation rates, college acceptance, college graduation rates are either going up and you keep that mayor or governor around or they're not going up and you get a new mayor. And it's that simple. And here's the other thing. But that also means that the general population has to say the only thing we care about is results. The only thing we care about is if our kids are learning more, graduating more, dropping out less. And if the government can figure out a way to do it, the means absolutely justify the ends. Because that's how I am about my kids. That's how everyone is about their kids. If your kids are getting a great education, fantastic. You know what I mean? I'm not answering any questions because we know that's going to prepare them for a great life. But the crazy thing is we have a lot of problems in our country. We have employment issues. We have incarceration issues. We have homeless issues. Uh, this is all of these are prevalent in, in San Francisco crime issues, but it's flabbergasting to me that both private sector, Twitter, public sector, city hall, we'll, go, we'll talk about every other problem, you know what I mean? But we won't address what is probably the only way to really address it in a long term fashion, and that's making sure that everybody has a decent, high-quality education. You had a decent, high-quality education. I had a decent, high-quality education. We have all kinds of problems, but we don't have these community problems that, that, that happen when you don't graduate from high school or so many other problems we're having. So it's, it's a little bit baffling. It's a little bit frustrating. The answer to me is actually more simple than people will, will talk about, but simple doesn't mean easy. There is a path to victory. We just have to have the courage and determination to hold people accountable to do it. So that's education in the city. There's a, a host of other things. I know you're huge on the future. One of the things that has happened recently, and I'm, I'm tracking it as close as I can, is there's a number of groups that are starting to think about building new cities. 
or, or new neighborhoods. We invested in a company called Cul-de-Sac, which is a new city, but it's it's almost a big neighborhood. But it's the same. And then there's a couple other groups. And and at one point, Google, Google had Sidewalk Labs, which is the same thing. The approach is that you're going to build a city from the ground up without any kind of restrictions. So you can do it as you would almost in a theoretical way. That means that if you want to go carless, you go carless. If you want to be like completely eco-friendly and everything recyclable or made out of recyclable materials, you do that. Bikes, trolleys, whatever. And it could even mean schools and, and other types of things as well. Obviously, these will just be a couple of cities here and there. But I think what it will do is it will speed up innovation that can be then retrofitted to other cities. And that may be stoplights and other things. So I'm excited about about those types of initiatives because I like both the hardware and software improvements that will come to everyday living because of them. The new city movement is is perhaps like one of the most exciting things happening right now because, you know, we all are idealistic about, okay, we want a blank slate to start over. And everyone wants to say, oh, no, why don't you just fix the existing systems? But sometimes you have to you have to try something new. You have to experiment. And what these new city projects enable is, is this experimentation on large enough scale where people in other cities can look to them. Like, oh, wait, this is what they're doing in Tolosa or Starbase or Cul-de-Sac or Neom or, you know, there's there's a handful of others. It's like, oh, this is really cool. Why don't we have this? Why don't we have software that allows you to report like a dangerous intersection or, you know, see how the our local politicians are like spending their capital or you know, drones that look like flying cars. It's going to be easier to do those in, in places where you, you have just kind of started with a blank slate and then you can take it to Los Angeles and San Francisco. Yeah. Well, it's cool because they're, they're all opt in to, or ideally, right. You have, I think one of the, the exciting projects on this this week is uh, Mark Laurie and Bjarke Engels with, with Tolosa, uh, citytolosa.com for anyone listening who wants to check it out. It's like, they don't have to worry about autonomous vehicle policy and say, hey, this is the default here. Or a cul-de-sac, hey, you don't have a car. And people who don't want to live that lifestyle won't go there. And so we don't have this, this infighting around what policy decisions to make. Instead, people can choose Oh, hey, I want to go live in cul-de-sacs. It's I can walk everywhere, or I can go live in you know New York, or I can go live in San Francisco. Like you get the choice. I think that the one of the big challenges is like how do you actually get people to go move to these cities? How do you kind of solve the demand problem? You really can't appreciate how exciting those types of things are. Like so in DC, like so my budget when I was mayor was like eleven billion dollars. Like and we would and some of my agencies, we you know we were they were in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Schools were like a billion, maybe health also. The number one thing that people used to come up to me and say that they were most excited about were bike lanes. And bike lanes cost like, you know, to paint a bike lane, probably a few thousand dollars. But people got so excited about it. And we, we, we did like, I think we did 40 miles of bike lanes in Washington, D.C. But it allowed people to more safely be on their bikes, which is obvious, which then allowed them to kind of be out in nature more and not be relying on their car and to be able to go short places. So those types of initiatives like you're, like you're talking about will, will do that in spades because there'll be all types of initiatives making people excited about living where they are. And we're excited to invest in companies and in, in, in things like that. It's not just cul-de-sac as the whole idea, 
But like you said, there will be new software initiatives, there will be new hardware initiatives. It will drive new technology in general. So we're excited about it. When you think about kind of the, the second and third order effects of these projects, like what, what comes to mind for you? Because like, and, and when you guys are doing your brainstorming around whether or not to invest in companies in these spaces, like when you kind of play it, play them out, what does that world look like? And kind of how does that shape, you know, the country as a, as a whole? Yeah, I think it's the, the things that we talked about. It's, it would be like a Hyperloop or an above, above ground trolley system or, or some types of, uh, you know, bike sharing that you couldn't do in a traditional city or scooters. I like what you said about, about lighting, smart lighting and things of that nature, just lighting up sidewalks. You know, you've, you've seen all kinds of advances in technology in crosswalks and things like that. There's obviously a lot more to do. It, it actually... It starts to remind me kind of of what Laura and I are trying to do in some of our other investments around space and, and satellites and, uh, and other investments we're making because that's a whole new burgeoning area for the private sector. So just as like there's going to be new neighborhoods built and new cities built on Earth, there's going to just be a whole new kind of innovation happening in space. And it feels like you know, it's really like this is the time and place where it's no pun intended launching. We're really excited about some of the technology that's going to come out of more trips to the moon, future trips to to Mars, or just putting more satellites on Earth by you know a factor of ten x every couple of years. And so we're excited about that that as well. And that's a big big thing we're looking towards in the future. Yeah, one of the exciting pieces of, of that is like just Starlink, right? Everyone's like, oh, they're just doing satellites. They give people internet. No, no, no. This is like the implications of this are profound because suddenly people who live in places, remote places that didn't have quality access to the internet, you know, where they can barely buffer a YouTube video can now do that. And they can communicate and they can do Zoom calls and they can like chat with people online and they can share information in ways that they've never been able to before. And then they can take jobs online. Like, <laughs> it's crazy to think about. So many positive benefits. And you're right. We've got a company called Udivate, which is an antenna company. And they will take more broadband down from the satellite. So the more innovation there, the better they will do, the more they will be able to help kind of the neighborhoods and cities and countries in the world that aren't as connected to the internet. We're super bullish on on space as a new frontier, not just for humankind, but for, you know, business and for enterprise and investing. When do you think about the kind of the, the space space, what gets you and, and your team like the most excited? Like, wh- what is this unlocking? Like, what is the world? Like, how does the world change? Because like, I'll be like, oh, we're just sending rockets up to the moon. And that's kind of the, the mainstream narrative. But it's always good to poke on like, what's actually going on here? So we start out like one of the biggest goals is to if we can make improvements on Earth that we could only find by exploring space or building technology that helps us helps gets us to space. So we're looking at one company now that is you know kind of a dynamic uh, satellite imagery company, and I mean there's so many different farmers in the world who have acres and acres of land that it's impossible for them to know what is going on on their on their farm small farmers big farmers obviously everybody eats so this is a huge issue for every person on earth knowing when to harvest the farm knowing when to water it knowing when to graze it all these things are you are much better known with 
enhanced satellite imagery. So you send more satellites up, you send better satellites up, they send better images down with better data, then, then the farmers here will be able to do a much better job feeding the seven and a half billion people on earth, and it will be a, more, a better system. Everybody knows farmers have struggled, so anything we can help them to be better in their industry is great. So that's just one example. There's all kinds of other examples about just how being in microgravity can help you just figure out, say, medical solutions to things. And so we're very bullish. It's funny for me, it's a real combination of kind of both of my life. So I was 10 years as an elected politician and now just over 10 years in private sector and venture capital. So, you know, way before you were born and even before I was born, like Jack Kennedy, the, the president said he wanted us to be the first country to send a man to the moon. And at the time we were getting, we were getting our butt kicked. And so that was a really bold statement. And he really kind of like showed, he really like kind of confronted Russia and confronted the rest of the world and said, America is going to be a leader on that. And he, at one point, he even tried to do a joint project with Khrushchev and, and we would both send, we would jointly send people to the moon. But ended up, we ended up doing it. And he, he said we needed to have it done in that decade. And it happened in that decade. And, and what he did was he showed that, and he had the exact same priorities that you and I are talking about, that this, this would allow us to have more technological innovation. It would allow us to be able to solve better problems on earth. And it would, you know, it would kind of take, take us in, into this kind of realm that we're in Silicon Valley now where nothing is impossible. But then the government got stagnant for decades. And it's just now, just in, just in this decade, and a lot of it is due to, to Elon Musk and, and SpaceX and to other people who, who have said the private sector can, can actually do this better and cheaper, that now we're having all these initiatives like, like Lorite Epsilon 3 and some of the other companies we've invested in where the private sector has come up with all these great ideas to explore space. But for me, like I, this actually may be like the best example of the government and one of the best examples of the government and private sector working together because NASA, from what I can tell, they may, I'm sure there were people who were resistant but NASA has kind of now embraced the private sector. They, they're putting out bids. They're asking Congress for more money, not for themselves, but that they can do bids to SpaceX and Blue Origin and other companies. And honestly, it's a really good example of the public sector and private sector working together that hopefully will carry over to transportation and to education as a model for how we can do a better job doing things here for, on Earth and in our country and et cetera. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about the the space race. That like mission, that grand ambition imbued in our culture with a sense of like optimism and possibility. And and you know, we've seen that kind of fade in the government and then in the in the culture at large. Like, how do we get people excited about the future again? How do we showcase kind of all the wonderful possibilities that exist in the world of tomorrow, such that people are like, oh, this is what could be. Oh, I want to go there. This is why new cities are so important and why SpaceX and rocket launch are so important because they, they give people this, it's my view, they give people this like sense of hope and optimism. And that trickles down to education and you know, not so much some of the other spaces. But and there's all kinds of exciting things happening. You know, there's things, exciting things happening in mobile phones and cryptocurrency, health technology. I think you know, space is just, one of those examples, it's you know already you know on three hundred billion dollar per year industry, and it's just going to keep growing. I know you like kind of that, the the physical excitement of things. I mean, when Bezos went up, I guess it was about a month ago. I mean, 
it kind of was almost like a sporting event, you know, and I think that's going to, that's going to continue for years to come. I mean, I think when we send humans back to Mars, I'm um, back to the moon in a couple of years. I mean, everybody's going to be watching it. The difference this time is what happened when, when we sent Apollo to the moon in 69, no one had like a plan on what else we would do in space. It was, you know, Kennedy had long been assassinated and, the, the vision was gone. Now that's not the case. Now sending uh, men to, uh, and women to the moon is just one big part of sending more satellites up, about bringing more information down, about perhaps people sending people to Mars, perhaps people having extended living and staying uh, in space or on space stations. And all of that is going to just make, make the world a better place and more innovation and more information. The thing about space, it's, it's super relatable. People can see it like, oh, yeah, we can go to the moon, we can go, go on to Mars. Uh, but there are other things that are happening like in, in the world of energy and food. Actually, I want to get your quick take on kind of the, the future of food. There's a lot of advancements in like cultured, cultured meat and vertical farming that are happening around. People are not privy to this. But imagine when we can print high quality, clean meat. No microplastics, no factory farming, just like quality protein. Like what, what is it like the world's going to be like, imagine that. No, I mean, it's amazing how many high quality, you know, non-meat products there are. I mean, if you have somebody who has a beyond or impossible burger, everyone's always surprised at how, how good they are. And obviously it's much more sustainable, et cetera. We invested in, in nugs, which is now called, but nugs, nugs is founded by Ben Pasternak. Uh, and he's, I mean, I think he's right now 21 years old and he founded it, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, he's part of the future of this, this country where young people, you know, have amazing ideas about how to do things differently. And if you've ever followed him on Instagram or social media, he's very creative about selling and marketing the product also, which is, which makes it fun. And so I'm, you know, we, we, we don't make a lot of food investments were mainly into software and, and some hardware, but it's, it's part of the innovation of, uh, of living in 2021. And I'm, I'm excited about it and I'll try anything. We should be trying. These are other things we should be trying in schools, you know, innovative, you know, partnerships with the nugs and impossible meats and beyond meats of the world. And then like, if you expand that out, like what else should we be doing in schools? Like I was, I was talking with the founder of this kind of nuclear, medical company and it's like one of the best things that i ever did was i had to play with a, a nuclear reactor I had to see like i had to put like the uranium into it and then see kind of the reaction take place could have visibility into the system it's like it's like oh this is in relatively harmless oh this is super cool and it's like and then you take that and you pair that with like biology and, and what sort of kind of crispr ex- experiences can we like can kids kind of experiment with in the classroom like Instead of dissecting frogs in eighth grade, uh, you know, biology class, you're able to kind of look and investigate a, like a, a strand of DNA. Think about the implications that it has on medicine and health and life. It's like there's so much, so much going on right now. No, you'll find that as, as long as you do two things, one, like demand the basics, read on grade level or math on grade level or above, obviously, and then be creative these teachers are going to come up with amazing ideas. We just need people to let them 
run free with their ideas and principles run free with their ideas. I mean, even in like exercise and nutrition, you know what I mean? You could literally have kid, you know, kids learning to bike and exercise in school and all kinds of better ideas than that. Well, this is the thing is like fitness and health are, are like so important and they're often overlooked. I mean, I wanted to, you know, talk to you about kind of like the triathlon stuff that you, you, you seem like you were, are you still doing that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah it's like sound, sound mind, sound body. I normally, my head would normally explode. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm such an exercise enthusiast, you know, I don't know how to regiment it in any way towards, towards the masses, but I do think, you know, that workplaces that are just open and letting people, you know, work out at different times on the job, before the job, after work, I, you know, if there's any ideas people come up with, I think they're supportive because I think you'd be much more productive when you have gotten in your daily exercise and, you know, you've been able to reduce weight and stay more fit, et cetera. So other people have the ideas. I would just be in, in favor of at, at every turn. Just to, to tack back, I, one of the things I, I've been thinking about a lot recently is kind of like in, in the context of, of climate, there's a lot of, you know, focus on renewables and sustainability. And it seems like one of the conversations that no one wants to have is around like nuclear, right? Does it like, and I'm curious, like from a political, like from your background in DC, like, why do you think this is some, isn't something people are discussing, right? Because it's like, oh, solar, oh, wind, oh, hydro, like bat, fossil fuels, coal, like we have to get off this stuff, but nuclear doesn't come up in the conversation. It's like very curious to me. It's probably, you know, historic and, you know, there's so much worry people have about it being used in the wrong way. And then it may be, it may be like space. I mean, you know, space 10 years ago, 15 years ago, everybody thought was dead and we'll talk about it. And now it's, you know, every big venture capital fund has at least one big space investment. And, like in Y Combinator, you know, the, you know, the Silicon Valley's biggest incubator, uh, accelerator, there, there's so many space companies coming through every year. The same may be true with nuclear, you know, as long as we kind of get past the boogeyman part of it, um, there probably will be a lot of innovation in the future and, and people will find positive ways to do it. And then, and then you'll find startups who are trying to innovate around it. That's obviously not happening right now, but hopefully it'll be a part of the future. Yeah, I think I think the comparison to the to the space like space race space sector is is a good one, right? Because like, yeah, no one, everyone's like, oh, this can't be done. Elon comes in, he's like, hmm, I think we can build a rocket cheaper than we can buy it. Okay, let's go spin this thing up. And everyone's like, you're nuts. But like, here we are, 17 years later, or actually, I think it was, it was 2001 or 2003. I don't I don't recall, but almost 20 years later, and they're shipping rockets up once a week now. And like, there's a whole industry that's popped up, like it's happening. Yeah. And so I think we'll see that in other areas. No, it's really interesting how like really huge sectors of, uh, of our world come up for innovation in cycles, you know, like the cryptocurrency movement, which is going to, and I'm a big believer in, in cryptocurrency and the blockchain, you know, that's going to completely transform, you know, m- how we deal with money and monetary policy in the country, et cetera. And we're at the, we're, we're at the beginning stages of that. And, and, and we're at a, another beginning stage of space and, and other things will come back and new things will, will emerge. And it's just up to us to just keep an open mind and be supportive of change and 
be pro-disruption, if you will. Yeah, we've covered education, we've covered food, we've covered space. Like outside of the, the Silicon Valley sphere, what are some of the things that you think that would be beneficial for people like around the country, around the world to, to kind of lean into when it comes to disruption? Like what else should we be disrupting? Should we just embrace it wholeheartedly? Like what are the, I don't know, what are some of the things like people should be focusing on that aren't currently talked about? That's a good question. So like when I first started at Andreessen Horowitz 2012, you know, everyone was still super excited about Mark's or Wall Street Journal article where he talked about, you know, software eating. And I restate that because you really want to be of the notion that everything, you know, should continuously be, be disrupted. You know, if you had to pick things at the top, certainly the environment is at the top, you know, innovations and transportation and fossil fuels and other ways that we can improve the environment are paramount and important. And hopefully you know, the government will do as we're doing in space. What I talk with NASA is just find lots of different ways to incentivize the private sector and partner with the private, private sector in doing this. Because I think, you know, we've made advances, but it's it's just a drop in the bucket and we've, we were headed in the wrong direction for so many years. So We've got, you know, a few investments to touch on that. We've got a really cool, like, we've got a really cool consumer company that we invest in called Goodfair, where uh, it's it really, it's it's secondhand clothing. And it's really kind of Gen Z's who are kind of the, the leading customers. And it's trendy and it's, you know, it's really going against this whole negative trend of, of fast fashion and the mass production of clothes, which can do not biodegrade and fill up landfills. And, and that's a great company and we're excited to invest in, but that's obviously just a very small part. We need bigger, bolder, even more impactful versions of, of good fare in, in different industries. What is no one building that you want to see? Like you're seeing lots of deal flow, like lots of in, like things on the frontiers, like what's not being kind of built? They're like, I want someone to go do this. No, you know what? I mean, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, if I, <laughs> the minute I have an idea, I'm going to like send it to one of our engineers we invest in to have them start to put it together and we'll, we'll incubate that company. You know, most of the things that I like to do are actually manage things that already exist much better and find ways to do what we're already doing, like, just in a better way. And some of that is with new technology, software, hardware. Some of it is just actually just people working harder and doing their job better. And we've talked about some of the things, you know, healthcare is a, is a big, big area that is ripe for disruption on par with education. We're kind of in a transformative stage with telemedicine. It's going to be interesting to see how comfortable human beings get, you know, doing a video chat like you and I are doing now with their doctors, but it's, it makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense that you do everything you can to try to resolve an issue before you go to see a doctor, but we're not sure whether that's going to be like a transformation or a revolution or just something that just a few people use. But I'm hopeful that technology will impact the world of telemedicine, the world of healthcare and more. Yeah, well, the telemedicine one is is fascinating. Like, one, it makes like access to high quality care like way more accessible to to more people, and they don't have to spend the time going to the doctor's office or the hospital. Right? It seems like it's kind of like political at this point, where it's like, oh, can you see it if you're in the state of California? Can you see a doctor in the state of Colorado? 
or like you have to find a doctor who's in the same state. And this happens with like psychologists and therapists and all sorts of other like professions. Like you can't cross state lines with stuff. And it seems to be kind of a relic of, you know, a bygone era that needs to be revamped. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I'm optimistic about that. And um, we, you know, we've got some great investments in some, in some health tech companies, but we're always on the lookout uh, for more. And most of the ones that we invest in have some connection to kind of uh, telemedicine or new ways new to engage your doctor or see your doctor, which is cool because one, people don't see their primary doctors enough. And two, to your point about exercise, if you do see your doctor, they're probably going to give you advice long-term about how you don't have to go see them as much just by taking care of your body more and eating better. Last, last question for you here. Like, again, we've talked about like lots of things we're optimistic about. Is there anything that you are super excited about uh, the world? Like if we, if we think about the world in 2030, what excites you the most about that, that future in a context that we haven't touched on yet? If I had to think one thing that hasn't happened yet, but I won't pick one, but I'll start with, with, with Hyperloop. I'll start with, you know, underground, underground rapid transportation, you know, being able to go from New York to DC in a half hour or from LA to San Francisco in a half hour. I mean, that looks like there's no, re- like we have that, we know how to do it. We have the space. It's just a matter of kind of the government, the private sector coming together and making it happen, which is why those those new cities are exciting because then you have like blank slates. Uh, and but I I know like you know my friend Mayor Bowser in D.C. and I know like uh, the mayor of uh, of Miami and other mayors have been really kind of pro these types of uh, uh, of innovation. So that's one. You know we've invested in a company I haven't mentioned called Stoke, which is a fully reusable rocket company, and this is the future. So. The past was rockets that went up and you only used them once, which is amazing. Like literally like you'll spend $500 million on a rocket and you'll never use it again. And then where we got today is we're like at, at a partially reusable rocket. You can, you know, the, the first stage uh, is reusable, which has dramatically reduced the cost of launch. Uh, so you can take satellites and other things up into up or much less. So now when you go to second stage reusability, to full reusability, we'll be able to take, and what Stokes' vision is, you can take satellites up on a daily basis. You can fly rockets into low Earth orbit at the same pace that you send normal airplanes to from California to, to the East Coast. That will be, you, know, you talked about, Starlink and other things that would be that would be an amazing contributor in this whole kind of space race and new frontier and uh, and building the future that we that we all want to see. So I'm I'm very excited about that. That's not 30 years. That's only a, a couple of years away. We're hoping to launch those rockets by the end of next year. And uh, every couple months, there's a a new idea that comes across our desks, and we're excited to look at it. Love it. Any kind of calls to action for listeners other than like, hey, if you're if you're raising, go talk to go talk to y'all. And then where can people where can people find you? Well, Twitter's super easy because that's just at Adrian Fenty. So that's that's probably the easiest way. But yeah, no, we're always looking for new ideas in, in the private sector. We invest in seed stage startups. You know, the other call to action is just to be as impatient 
with the government to make the type of change you know that they can make is humanly possible. I honestly think that people are too nice. People are too patient that they give like politicians and government, they give them like too many ways to make excuses. And so I, I want people to be a little bit more impatient and a little bit more honest and a little bit more demanding. And I think then we'll, we'll start to see better results, the same type of results in the government that we're seeing you know, in some of these great private sector companies. Thanks so much for, for kind of coming on. This is fantastic. Yeah, we'll see you soon. See you at the World Fair, right? Yes, sir. Boom. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share your favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time. Go build.